Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I know that we've had a few technical difficulties this morning, and so you've probably noticed that we've just got the one monitor working. Uh, hopefully, you can still see everything OK. I know in that last song as well, uh, we kind of had all the lyrics in just one big slide. Um, hopefully, it wasn't too much spoilers for what comes later in the bridge. But um, yeah, I think our creative team is right on top of things and is trying their best to make sure everything flows well. And so uh, please do, you know, I guess, encourage them after the service, because it is a, a bit of a hard task when something fails, like a projector or some piece of technology. Uh, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Um, and each week here at New Life, we open up the Bible together uh, to hear God. And through doing this together, we have to learn to listen to what God has to say to us and to love him fully uh, through his word. Uh, this is our belief, and this is why we open up the Bible each week. And in the psalm that we heard this morning, uh, that Esther read to us, it's a you know, fairly lengthy psalm. We heard this psalmist lament. You know, his grief, his sorrow, uh, encapsulated in the words of this psalm. And then we heard his cry out for deliverance from the ridicule and the persecution of his enemies. Now, some of us might resonate with this, um, especially in times right after a particularly big spiritual event. And we've had a few uh, fairly recently as well. Things like baptism, things like confirmation, or things like uh, wintercon, which we just came back from. If you have faced trials or temptations, you know, post any of these things, if you found that you're struggling in your faith um, after a big spiritual event like these, you know, sometimes we just want to give up and run away because we think, what's the point of these big events if we're just going to end up like this anyway? Now, it's in these times in particular that we want to hear so badly from God for no other reason than to know that we're still loved that we haven't been forgotten by God. You know, quite often, this is the way that we think when we want to hear from God. And that's why we start this new series this morning titled, Listen. Because when you read God's word, God's voice is heard. And so you can see the, uh, the title screen there with the new artwork. Unfortunately, we don't have it on widescreen today. Uh, sorry, Chloe, um, you work very hard on this. Now, this is something very important for us to understand, though, when we think about the word of God. Because many times in my early days of faith, I just wanted to hear God's voice. And I don't know if you resonate with this. You know, I just wanted to hear what God had to say to me in this very moment because I just wanted to know that he still loved me in the midst of whatever trials and temptations that I was facing, in the midst of whatever struggles were coming my way. I just wanted to know that he hasn't forgotten. At hard times, I would seek out testimonies of people that talked about audibly hearing God's voice. And then that would just kind of intrigue me. I would get very interested and wish that I had such experiences myself. Why couldn't I hear God's voice the way that these people claim that they did? And yet the answer was right in front of me this whole time. And the answer is right in front of all of us as well. Now, I know that our minds can tend to wander a little bit during times of reading and prayer and sermons. So I really invite you throughout this series uh, called Listen Place everything aside and give God your full undivided attention and see what he has to say to you. And with that in mind, how about we pray and listen to what God has to say to us. Father, we want to invite you 
to take your word and to place it upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to receive this word and to really take root in all that we do. We don't want to just walk out of here having heard a sermon or having heard a bunch of prayers or having sung a bunch of songs and have nothing change inside of us. But we want to walk away knowing that we heard the very voice of God. We want to know, Lord, that you've given us your words and we want to treasure them. Would you help us, Lord, to receive your words for what they are? Holy Spirit, would you do that work inside of all of our hearts? Open us up from the inside. Help us, Lord, to lower whatever defenses that we might put up. Help us, Lord, to unblock our ears. Help us to see what it is that you have to say to us. We want to read your word and we want to recognize it for the very words that you have for us in this very moment in time. We want to know, Lord, that all that you have to say to us is here on this page in front of us, is here in the very pages of our Bible, and you speak to us clearly. Would you help us to care to listen? So many times we come together and we have a brief encounter where we say that we do want to hear from you and then we walk away distracted, tempted, giving in to all sorts of other things. In this moment, where we have this moment of clarity, would you help us, Lord, to move from this moment into a lifetime of dedication to you, of commitment to your word, of receiving what it is that you have to say to us. Help us, Lord, to move from a moment of infatuation into a lifetime of love towards you, just as we receive your love. Would you guide us, give us wisdom by your Holy Spirit, and help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Now this psalm that we read this morning is one person's experience of mockery and oppression from his enemies. Uh, we can read that it says of David, and so we say that uh, it is David who has gone through all sorts of things in his life. Uh, you can read about it in uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and You can read all about how he has faced uh, different trials and tribulations in his life, different people that have oppressed him in different ways where he was chased around uh, all of his city and he had to go into enemy territory to find any sort of safety. Imagine that. You actually had to go into enemy territory in order to find any sort of safety for your life. And yet by the end of the psalm, this individual, his experience is used to speak of the experience of an entire nation. of all the Israelites who are in exile. It's not just about David anymore, but it's about all of the nation of Israel as they stand in exile. Now, you might not remember this far back, or maybe you weren't with us at this time, but very far back on the 14th of March, two years ago, we looked at the fall of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon of the Israelites in a sermon titled, A Brief History of Subjugation. It's okay if you don't remember this. I had a hard time remembering it as well, and so you have permission. And it's in such a context Now we can perhaps see how one person's experience as recorded in God's word can become the cry of an entire nation. One person's experience of oppression suddenly becomes the cry that's common to everyone as they stand in exile in this terrible nation. But before we get there, we've got to go back to the beginning of this psalm to see what this psalmist experience is all about. So how about you join me in verses 1 to 3? 
It reads this, save me God for the water has risen to my neck. I have sunk in deep mud and there is no footing. I've come into deep water and a flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail looking for my God. In these opening verses, we find an unusual context, especially for us, okay? Because for us here at New Life in the modern day, we find something familiar because we've just gotten done talking about chaotic waters. You know, we went through our mini-series on baptism. We've been talking all about, for the past three weeks, out of the waters, coming out of the chaotic waters and moving into the river of flowing water that's the river of life. You know, these chaotic waters embody danger and death from the very beginning of the Bible. And we've talked about this in week one. We saw the way that these chaotic waters were shaped into the waters of life and salvation by God for the Israelites as they escaped from Egypt through the sea. And now we see water in this imagery again as the psalmist pleads for help. He cries out for God to save him from the mocking attacks of the enemy. And the way that he describes the situation that he's in It's like the desperate struggle of someone drowning out at sea. He says, the water has risen to my neck. I've sunk in deep mud, and there's no footing. A flood sweeps over me. Now, in the language that this was first written, in the original Hebrew, the word for neck has this double meaning of a person's very being. You know, we might say in the modern day something like, my head is flooded, because in the modern day, we tend to think of ourselves as intellectual. You know, the very thing that we think about is that we're a bunch of brains, and this is just this fleshly heap that carries around these brains. But what in the world would cause someone to feel this type of way, to feel like they're drowning? Have any of you ever been in a situation where you nearly drowned? You know, maybe you were out in the ocean, you didn't really know how powerful the rip would be, Maybe you're in a pool, maybe you're in a bath. Hopefully not. Those of you who have had near-death experiences of almost drowning know what this is like. This desperation, because you're clawing and struggling and trying to grab at anything to keep you from sinking, but it's all just water. It's all just flowing through your hands as you grab for anything to keep you afloat, and so you can't get hold of anything. Nothing can save you except for outside intervention. When I was a child, uh, I was living in America. I was living in a you know, neighborhood with a bunch of apartments, and I had this uh, good friend of mine, Eric. He was obsessed with going to the pool every summer. Every summer without fail. Every single day, you know, we're on school holidays, he would be like, come to the pool. You've got to come to the pool with me. The pool is where we can have fun. And so if he never came to see me, I knew where I would find him, maybe by the pool. I didn't really know how to swim, but I would follow him along because, you know, he's my friend, and I would always stay in the shallow end. The water's like up to, you know, my knees at most. I'm just watching him. This is the most boring thing for a kid. I'm just watching him. He's doing cannonballs and flips into the pool, into the deep bed. It looks so fun. And here I am. wet up to my knees and just like watching like this like it's so fun we'll just hang out with him in the sun by the pool but one day I got to the pool and Eric wasn't there yet and so I'm waiting it's even more boring I don't have my friend to look at 
And this is long before the days of mobile phones, internet, whatever, and so you just have to wait, and you just have to see if they'll show up. So I got bored while waiting, and I started thinking, well, it's, it'll be okay if I'm hanging onto the sides of the pool, and I'm going around. And so I did this. I'm hanging onto the side of the pool, and I'm going, and the water's slowly rising, you know, up to my neck, like this almost. And then I started getting bolder and bolder. You know, I, I went around one revolution around this pool. Like, hey, that was easy. It wasn't so bad, and it was kind of fun. It wasn't really. It was just, you know, hanging on. And then I get to the deep end again, and something is slippery. And I don't know what it is, but my finger slipped, and I fell backwards into the deep water, and I began to sink. You can imagine, you know, there wasn't a lifeguard for some reason. I was thrashing around. I'm trying to grab onto anything I could. But just like I said, if you're in water, there's nothing to hold onto. I try to cry out for help. You know, I'm calling for Eric. Eric, you can save me. He's the same age as me. How is he going to save me? Anyone. But I'm just getting mouthfuls of water because I'm too deep. Nothing could save me except for outside intervention. So thankfully, someone five years older than me, Sheila Hicks from my neighborhood, dove in and with her powerful arms, pulled me out of the water. I got saved by this, this young girl who was like, you know, 12 years old or something. And this is how the psalmist describes the situation. There are people who hate him, who are seeking to destroy him. And it's like wave after wave upon his neck. He can't get any room to breathe. He can't get any room. He can't hold on to anything. Verse 4 reads, Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. Now the number of people who hate him is incredible. The psalmist says metaphorically, that they're more numerous than the hairs on his head. And so no wonder it feels like he's drowning out at sea, where all the water's just crashing over you. They're out to get him. He has no escape. And we might feel this way sometimes. We might not have actual flesh and blood people that are out to get us like the psalmist here. I hope that's not the case for you. But many of us have experienced, after a big spiritual event, that there's some sort of a spiritual attack that happens. Something comes our way and we feel unusually down in the aftermath of this spiritual event. We feel this incredible temptation to dive back into sin. Something beyond the physical realm seems to be out to get us. After committing my life to Jesus uh, many years ago, I remember being woken up in the middle of the night. This was like a week later. Some of the most strange, messed up dreams that I've ever had until then and ever since. You know, just torturous dreams that I'm having. And I felt completely helpless. I'd never experienced anything like this. And what could I do to defend myself in my dreams? And so I was irrational. It's the middle of the night. It's like three or four in the morning. And I, would, I, I wondered, am I ever going to be able to sleep again? This is one night, you know. <laughs> This is after one night. This is far before I had kids, obviously. And so I thought I was a goner. I thought this was over. 
And so at three or four in the morning, mobile phones were invented by this time, and so I called my pastor. And unfortunately, mobile phones were a thing, but do not disturb was not. And so he woke up. He's like, oh, you know, he's like so tired in the middle of this night. He has all these health problems as well. He's just groaning. And I tell him the situation. I'm probably not making much sense. I'm telling him about these demons that are torturing me. All this stuff that's happening in my dreams. He's like, what? And so he starts praying for me. His words aren't making sense either. But what do we do when we're in the middle of something like this? Something is torturing us spiritually, internally, emotionally, mentally. What do we do? What are we looking for? What reassurance do we truly want? What's this man going to tell me? And what is it that's going to actually deliver us? At other times, unfortunately, it's not someone or something that attacks us. But we might find ourselves at the very center of it all. After a big spiritual event, we find that we're back to the same old patterns, repeating the same old mistakes again, wondering if anything has even changed. Verses 5 to 6 read this, God, you know my foolishness, and my guilty acts are not hidden from you. Do not let those who put their hope in you be disgraced because of me, Lord God of armies. Do not let those who seek you be humiliated because of me, God of Israel. The psalmist faces this too. The very thing that we're talking about when we struggle through these events, when we feel like we have no way out because we just go back to the same old thing, the psalmist faces this too. The book of Psalms are a collection of individual experiences, feelings, songs, and prayers that give us a voice for everything that we're going through in our lives, for our collective experiences. Through reading God's word, we pray these words to him, and we hear his voice back. And the psalmist seems to repeat the same mistakes too, just like us, admitting to God his own foolishness and guilty acts. We don't know what they are. I think these might be intentionally left a little bit general so that we can fill in the blanks of our own stuff when we pray these prayers. But notice now, the psalmist doesn't just stop there and wallow in his self-pity after this. He doesn't just sit there. His focus is instead very quickly on how this is going to affect others in his community. Do not let those who put their hope in you be disgraced because of me. Do not let those who seek you be humiliated because of me. Too often in the modern day, I think we skirt the line between sin and grace. And we think about our own individual freedom. That's all we're thinking about. We don't consider what our actions might do to those around us, how it might stumble people around us. Now, I talked with all those that were going to get baptized or confirmed in the weeks prior, and I told them, seek out discipleship. Continue to grow in Christ. This means learning how to confess and repent of our sins. You don't just automatically stop because you get there, because you get to get baptized or confirmed. Because you follow Christ, that doesn't mean that you stop sinning. And so learn how to confess and repent. This means not running away and hiding when mistakes are made. It means not believing that we are something because of baptism, 
but believing that we're growing in all of these things, in grace, through all this. We're not the finished article. Baptism and confirmation are not the endpoints or trophies that we receive at the end of the race. They mark us instead as ones that should be first to confess and repent. To open us, ourselves up in vulnerability so that in our weakness, God is displayed to be strong. What the psalmist lament here acknowledges is that his individual experience of failure has consequences for everyone in the community. We've seen this time and again, haven't we? You might have seen this if you've ever kept up with any Christian news. A big-name pastor makes the headlines because something that he did comes to light. And everyone in his church is horrified. They feel hurt and bewildered as they pick up the pieces. That's how we react. For the Israelites, shame and guilt weren't personal things that they just go through and internal things to just work out in private. They don't just go away and think about things, but they were visibly represented because the community would then reject you. You wouldn't be allowed to step foot until restitutions were made. How would that fly with us today? We might just chalk it up to further attack against us. Here's where we have to listen very carefully to what God has to say to us. Don't re-enter the chaotic waters. If you've been saved from the chaotic waters, don't re-enter them. There's going to be times in our lives when we feel like we've been thrust back into them. That's different when we're thrown into those situations. But we can always respond in a way where we won't sink beneath the surface of these waters. Instead, if we're thrown overboard, with Jesus, we can walk on the waters and we can be different from those that sink. And the psalmist responds in long-suffering here, verses 7 to 9. For I've endured insults because of you, and shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons, because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Enduring the insults and shame for God's sake. And thus it becomes that it's not the shame of his guilt that he endures, but people shame him for his commitment to God. The chaotic waters that we've been talking about, they were danger and death not only within nature, but embodied in humanity. And the opposite, love, peace, and security then are the river of life. What will you be? Rather than reacting out of defensiveness and retaliation, the psalmist cries out to God here. Verses 13 to 15 read this, But as for me, Lord, my prayer to you is for a time of favor. In your abundant, faithful love, God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the miry mud. Don't let me sink. Let me be rescued from those who hate me and from the deep water. Don't let the flood water sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Don't let the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, for your faithful love is good. 
in keeping with your abundant compassion, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Come near to me and redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. And these times, they lead him to desperate prayer, as they should for us as well. If we're in desperation, this should be the way that we pray. He repeats again and again, answer me. It seems audacious to some of us to talk to God in this way. But we need to be able to say this to God more than to the other people that leave us without any reply. This kind of desperate prayer can only come from truly knowing God and his word. When we really know God and his word, we know what kind of God he is. He's fiercely loyal in his love. He's divinely warm. He's kind and compassionate towards us. And if we know this, we can pray this kind of prayer. Otherwise, maybe the psalmist would spend time doubting his goodness, wondering if he still cares or if he's forgotten about us, or believing that he'll just abandon us. Now, I want us to be real because this isn't to say that we should mute ourselves when we talk to God. Even if we read that middle part of the psalm in verses 22 to 29, we see this to be true. This is, you know, one of the passages where we might feel a little bit uncomfortable about this being in the word of God. Like, how can the psalmist say this? How can this be recorded in the Bible? But the psalmist is honest with his feelings of anger, crying out to God to divinely strike down his enemies. The scariest thing for me when I'm reading this is calling upon God to erase them from the book of life. Can you imagine praying this about someone? Like someone wrongs you. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, God, erase that man's life. Erase his name from the book of life. Can you imagine praying this? These words can be bone-chilling and a little bit jarring for us when we're members of polite society. Like, please and thank you and all this stuff, right? But remember, these words are spoken only to God. The only one who's able to address them with tenderness and mercy. He's able to disarm us in our anger. He's able to heal our hurt. He's able to give out true justice. Not the vigilante justice that we're after. It's not free reign to take matters into our own hands. To attack people ourselves verbally or physically or otherwise. Because that would be pure sin. It's akin to saying that we know better than God and our vengeance is more powerful than God's. And to do this, we'll be re-entering into those chaotic waters rather than allowing for the rivers of living water to flow from us as we take up Jesus' call to forgive and to pray for our enemies. When we leave these things to God, we recognize the correct order of things in seeing that it's his prerogative to judge and to forgive. We also recognize, like it says in John 20, the divine mystery that in our forgiveness towards others, we set the path for their forgiveness from God. It's uncomfortable for us to think about. 
but just as uncomfortable, in Matthew 18, we read that it's their forgiveness that we give towards them that's representative of our own forgiveness from the Father. It's why Jesus can, when he's hung upon the cross unjustly, still cry out to the Father. He's hung upon there for sins that he didn't commit. He can still ask, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Throughout all of this, for us as people of the word of God, who listen to him through his word, we recognize, like Jonah did, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. But unlike Jonah, who at the end of this book of Jonah, he reacted in bitterness about God's grace and mercy towards his enemies. We can conclude like the psalmist did here in Psalm 69, praising God. That's how we'll conclude the sermon time this morning. As I read these words to you, let these words be your prayer as you listen to what God has to say to you. But as for me, poor and in pain, let your salvation protect me, God. I will praise God's name with song and exalt him with thanksgiving. That will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with horns and hooves. The humble will see it and rejoice. You who seek God, take heart, for the Lord listens to the needy and does not despise his own who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. They will live there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will live in it. Let's pray. Father, whatever it is that we go through in our lives, whatever it is that each of us have come burdened with to church this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of the invitation that Jesus gives to us cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us and to take his yoke instead because his yoke is easy. We know that he's taken the burden of all of our sin. We know, Lord, that all of our anger, our vengeful thoughts, our wrath, cast upon your son as he hung upon the cross receiving everything that we had to throw his way he asked you to forgive us and even more than our wrath he received yours for our sins even as he receives gall for food and vinegar for his drink 
He doesn't cry out in anger. He doesn't repeat what the psalmist says here. To erase our names from the book of life. But instead, he makes that gracious, scandalous trade, that exchange on our behalf. That he might die and that we might live. But as he rises again, so too we want to rise with him. We want to dwell for all of our days in your house. Help us to begin that this morning by receiving the words that you have for us. Let us, as we open up your word, hear your very voice coming from these pages as you comfort us, as you remind us of the grace that you have for us, as you pour out your love upon us. May we seek you. May we love you. May we listen to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.